Hey, everyone. We just need to read you a couple disclaimers. I know, I know, but believe me, they're for your own good. So, modifications on cars may void warranty, impact performance and safety, and may not be street legal. Off-roading is inherently dangerous. Abusive use may result in bodily harm or vehicle damage. Wear your seatbelt at all times and do not allow passengers in the cargo area. Okay, so now that we got through the heavy stuff, let's have some fun. The Toyota MR2 sports car. Lexus, the result of our relentless pursuit of perfection. Oh, what a feeling. Toyota. Toyota, let's go places. The Great Outdoors is an American staple with all the wide open land we have here in the United States. And Toyota is well known for vehicles that help you get out there and more importantly, help you make it back. On the podcast today, we have an eclectic group of adventure seekers, all infatuated with exploring nature and all with ties back to great Toyota vehicles. Gerald Swindle, Mike Pfeiffer, and Dan Krause all have unique backgrounds that have led them into different outdoor lifestyles, be it adventure photography, overlanding, or even professional angling. Yep, that's fishing. Mike Pfeiffer, better known by his YouTube channel and Instagram handle, Last Line of Defense, is a content creator who is enthusiastic about off-roading, overlanding, and general adventuring in the great outdoors. Scrolling through overlanding videos on YouTube has a tendency to give people the impression that it's out of reach, that these off-roading experts with tens of thousands of dollars of gear probably know something you don't and have gear that you'll never have. But tuning into Mike's content, you get the sense that it's attainable. This is actually possible. You can throw a tent in the back of your Tacoma and just get out of the city, no strings attached. Mike gladly shares his advice for getting into overlanding. But first, we ask how he got the bug for the outdoor lifestyle. I went to high school in Hawaii. And so we went out on the beaches and some dirt roads and didn't do a whole lot, did like a little bit of camping. But really, ever since I could drive, I've kind of been into off-road vehicles and then kind of continued the trend. I went to college in Chico, Chico State. Uh, So that's just the neighboring town of Paradise. And a bunch of my college buddies grew up in Paradise and that whole town is big into Toyotas and wheeling up in the mountains and everything. So that's really where I got tied into the, the kind of the Toyota community and heritage. And there's a bunch of FJ40s up there and old pre-Tacomas, just the Toyota pickups and stuff like that. And that's kind of where I got exposed to just how big kind of Toyotas were in the off-roading community. And yeah, I kind of just been into off-roading the outdoors ever since. Moved out to Colorado a decade or so ago and done, you know, a fair bit of backpacking and hiking and camping and fly fishing and stuff like that. And then kind of just naturally evolved towards taking my truck out and doing some camping out in the mountains out of the vehicle. And I loved it. And the rest is kind of history, as they say. The first element of overlanding is obviously your vehicle. For most folks, a Forerunner, Tacoma, Tundra, or in my case, my Lexus GX. And you might be surprised just how much your vehicle can do right off the showroom floor. In prepping to go off-road for the first time, many people think you need thousands of dollars in modifications, lift kits, winches, bumper. But Mike explains how capable a stock Toyota can actually be off-road. 
And it is, it's really just doing it. It's taking the the first step, I guess. If you've never taken your truck off-road and camped out of it, it seems probably pretty intimidating. And that's a question I get asked a lot is like, could a stock Tacoma make it there? And usually the answer is yes. I remember when I kind of first got into it, I was like, there's no way I could drive over that. And it just, you know, goes right up and over it. So probably when you're starting out, your vehicle is more capable than you are, which is kind of good because you don't want to do go too crazy or break things or flip or anything. If you have a stock Toyota or a stock 4Runner, chances are you can get to 90% of these places that I'm going and taking these pictures in. And I mean, somebody, a, a skilled driver, you know, in a bone stock 4Runner will be able to get to more places than somebody that has no idea what they're doing with the big lift and big tires and stuff like that. Granted the real combo, the winning combo is, is having both. <laughs> I do hope that I inspire people to, to get out there and I'm not necessarily inspiring people to build a crazy rig. There's one basic upgrade that makes a huge difference though. If you plan on leaving the dealership and heading straight out into the wild, be sure to stop and swap out your tires for something more off-road worthy. Typically, vehicles are sold from the dealership with tires that perform well on the road. And if you're going to do a lot of time off-road, then you want to get a tire probably that is going to do better off-road. So an all-terrain tire is a, a good place to go. I use BFG KO2s, which are kind of a tried and true tire that does pretty good on the road, but also is really capable off-road as well. Uh, and really that's going to be your best upgrade as far as being able to get you from point A to point B is just getting a set of tires that is a little more designed to go off-road. You don't need to do anything crazy like a mud train or anything like that. Mike's advice for gear, very much echoing the idea of taking a stock vehicle out into nature is simple. Don't let a lack of gear prevent you from going. The best way to start is bring what you already have. Do a short trip, gauge what you were lacking that could have made the trip more enjoyable and plan to bring it next time. If you're not going to extreme locations, it's really that simple. I talk a lot about gear and preparations and how to do this and how to do that, but it's really pretty easy just to get out there. I always try to tell people like, don't get too caught up in the gear. Uh, especially if you're just starting out, like you're a bone stock Tacoma or a bone stock Forerunner or a GX can get you to a lot of places. And you just, you know, go buy a cheap tent at Walmart or something and go set it up and see if you like it first. And you go out a couple of times and see what you're, you're missing or what you might want to add gear wise and just slowly kind of add what makes sense and what works for you. Because the setup that I have, yeah, is kind of extreme and Definitely not everybody needs it. And I think if you go even just one time, you'll say, that was great. I realized I should have brought another blanket. And the next time you bring another blanket, and then it is really, it's much better. Or you're like, oh, maybe I should have just, instead of trying to prepare a five-course meal, I should have just brought some hot dogs, which is another thing I kind of get made fun of because I just do like easy meals a lot. And then I would say the next thing would be just knowing your vehicle and the limitations and the capabilities of your vehicle. So it's not really something you would add on to it necessarily, but just go out. And typically it'd be great to go out with other people, potentially some people that are more experienced so they could spot you. They could tell you what you could go over and what you can't go over. 
but there are classes and there are big events like uh, Overland Expo is a big one where you can go to this event and you can actually sign up for classes. So they'll have like a winch class or a beginner off-road class or a recovery gear class or or whatever. So you can, you can pick some of these classes and then there's actual instructors. So if you're just getting into it and you're more of the formal education kind of person, there are courses and classes. So you've got your Forerunner or your Tacoma and you've got your first batch of camping gear, a cooler, some food, the last vital pieces. Where are you going to sleep? Do you bring a tent or fold down your Forerunner seats and cozy up inside? As I got older and started getting just more into the outdoors in general via backpacking or whatever, then I was like, okay, yeah, let's take this vehicle and let's like use it for, for some camping. So I slept in the bed of the truck. Uh, I think the, the, the first couple of times I just, you know, I, I used to do backpacking and I just would bring a backpacking tent and, and camp on the ground as usual. Uh, and then I got uh, I think they're just called like a truck tent or something. Yeah. Let's throw a tent into the truck and take it out and kind of like camp close to the truck versus throwing a backpack and camp 20 miles from the truck or something. It kind of just like Velcros into the bed of your truck and you just set it up and it's just like a tent that you set up in the bed of your truck. And I use that for a little bit. Uh, and then I was like, I really want a rooftop tent. So I got a rooftop tent and tried that. The rooftop tent seems to kind of be a rite of passage for overlanding. Once you put that home away from home on your roof rack, you've crossed the threshold from interest to obsession. Probably what put me firmly into the quote unquote overland world was, hey, I want to throw a rooftop tent on the top of my Tacoma. And then once I, once I did that, I guess, I don't know, there's kind of no turning back at that point where uh, it kind of unlocked the next phase of <laughs> vehicle modifications and stuff for me, I guess, on the Tacoma. If you have a tent that's just like strapped to your truck all the time and you have some gear and some cases, whenever I want to go, it just takes me five minutes to get ready. I just drive the truck. And when I find a place that I want to camp, I just pop the tent up in 60 seconds and I'm ready to go. So for me, it's it's less about creating a luxurious environment or glamping, and it's more just making it easy and attainable because a lot of my stuff is just... I go out on the weekends or whatever, you know, maybe leave on a Friday night and come back on a Saturday, just like a quick trip. So the amount of time I can shave off with packing and set up and tear down and coming back, it all kind of adds up if I'm just getting out for a night. So the rooftop 10 aspect for me anyways, is really just ease. It makes it easier for me to camp. And yeah, safety is kind of a secondary benefit. And then, yeah, this will sound kind of more glampy, but it's a little cleaner. You throw a tent on the ground when it's raining or snow is melting off, there's mud and there's rocks and dirt and this and that. And so when your tent is just on the roof of your car, it kind of keeps it cleaner as well. So there, I mean, there's really a ton of benefits to it. And it represents much more than convenience and efficiency. Mike shared a bit about where the rooftop tent craze originated and how it can keep you safe. Yeah, and that's kind of is popularized, yeah, maybe in, in in South Africa and Australia and stuff where I think that rooftop tents kind of originated. I don't know which which one of those, but yeah, over there there's a lot of animals that can kill you. But less so here in America, but you know, if I was in a place where I mean maybe maybe Florida or something. If I was in a place where there was animals that I was worried about like crawling around on the ground and getting to me, then the rooftop tents would certainly uh, add a sense of security. Uh, but you know, if a grizzly bear really wanted to get up there, they could 
but it does keep you away from the, the bugs and the snakes and the scorpions and, and all of those kind of critters that could definitely get you. So there's, there's definitely a safety aspect. So with all that in mind, we had to hear about Mike's Tacoma. Although he wouldn't want gear or mods to prevent anyone from getting their adventure fix, he hasn't shied away from decking out his Tacoma to something truly aspirational in the overlanding community. And with that, this is a reminder that modifying your vehicle with non-genuine parts can negatively affect your warranty, safety performance, and street legality. Yeah, I don't know. People have told me that I have the most famous Tacoma. It's just, you know, it's just parked in my garage like any other Tacoma. But but yeah, it's pretty recognizable, I guess. I have a third gen Tacoma, so 2016. When I bought a new vehicle, and I've had a couple trucks in the past and SUVs and everything like that before. So the Tacoma wasn't my first truck, but the Tacoma was my first brand new truck. So when I went to buy my first brand new truck, I was like, I'm going to buy a truck and I'm going to keep this for a long time. So, so what truck kind of fits my lifestyle that will, will be a good fit for a long time, will be you know nimble enough and fit everything I need. So I did a lot of thinking and landed on the, the third gen Tacoma because I like the styling and everything. And I know they've always been off-road capable and I got the TRD off-road. So it has the locker and some of the other traction control type features. It's probably my most iconic vehicle. Yeah, that's the one I kind of use the most, looks kind of crazy uh, and has been been great. I bought that one brand new and it's uh, it's wrapped right now. It's like a black camo, multicam black wrap. And under that is the quicksand color. I was like, oh, that quicksand color is so cool. And it's it's just tactical and it's unique. I mean, not really unique because Toyota's done some of those colors in the past, but I really wanted it. So I got on like the list and, and got kind of one of the first ones that was out there everywhere now, which is, which is cool. It's not necessarily a con, but when I, when I first got, it, I was like, this is so cool. Like I, there's nobody with this kind of truck and yada, yada, yada. And so that was kind of my, my pride and joy for a while. I bought it just, you know, bone stock from a dealership and then kind of slowly added to it. Uh, it wasn't like an overnight transformation or anything. It was over the course of a couple of years. And it was really, it was really an intentional build. I, I use it and I go and I, I wheel and I camp and I, my, I go out. And so it was a process of kind of figuring out what I wanted to add and then adding that. It wasn't just like, I bought it and designed a build and shipped it off to a shop and had it done. It was, I do most of the stuff just out of my own garage. And yeah, it was just a slow evolutionary process. So uh, it's been a wild ride and a lot of fun. Nature photography is truly aspirational. The things you see when you're scrolling on Instagram can get you amped up to get out there. Our next guest, Dan Krause, is the guy responsible for many of those photos. He's a thrill seeker who's turned his love of the outdoors into a full-fledged career of adventure photography, working with top brands like Red Bull, Yeti Coolers, and Patagonia. So my day-to-day work, at least now at this point in my life, I do a lot of commercial campaigns for outdoor brands with people like Yeti Coolers and uh, Marmot Mountain Gear, Patagonia, a a bunch of different companies. Really, the exciting thing is uh, showcasing you know, the the magic of the outdoors and how people interact with their environments. Once I got into rock climbing, I got into photography around the same time. And I actually went to college for uh, photojournalism. So I got a degree thinking uh, being a photojournalist was like the actual way you could make money as a photographer. And I mean, it is for some people, but uh, it, you know, 
I, I was living in LA when I started my career and just started freelancing. Like I just moved straight there from Ohio and uh, just started freelancing, refused to get another job. And here I am just a kid out of college trying to figure out how to build a business. So I did that for about four or five years. So I was like, well, you know, if I'm going to be broke, I may as well shoot what I really like shooting. So I started putting more of an effort into documenting like climbing trips I would go on and then kind of going into different fields of uh, sports where I'd follow athletes. And, you know, that brought me into skiing, that brought me into mountain biking, trail running, really everything I've gotten into with all my like personal interests has kind of come from wanting to photograph at first. Or it's just something that I've been interested in and just thought like, oh, this makes sense. I'll photograph this and go figure after a couple of years of that and actually making an effort to do more adventure work. It actually started paying way better than photojournalism did. And yeah, kind of completely did a 180 in the uh, dream job that was, you know, it, it wasn't really a realistic goal when I got into photography. Like, ironically, that ended up being what made me the most money and made me the happiest. Yeah, super weird. I guess it's just a lesson that you really got to go with your gut and shoot what you want to shoot or do whatever you want to do and the rest will kind of follow. Because if you've got that like passion and energy and joy from what you're doing, you know, you're going to put all of your effort you can into it. Dan has been perfectly located in the Southwest, moving from Ohio to Los Angeles and then to Salt Lake City. And so some of the United States' most beautiful natural areas have been right at his fingertips. Leaving the city and ending up in the remote desert in a matter of hours is a perfect scenario for a photographer like Dan. That kind of life requires a certain type of gear and not just camera equipment, but the right vehicle too. Dan shares how smaller cars just weren't the right fit for his working environment and how he fell in love with his forerunner. So I had um, moved to Utah and I was driving the Highlander and um, I was down in um, Southern Utah and I was out by the old Red Bull uh, Rampage, like uh, mountain biking courses, and it had rained a ton. So exiting that, I was off-roading and I get to this really steep section of highway that had a hard left turn and a river below, like no barrier at all. And it's the kind of mud that it just turns to clay and everything just slides. And after that, I was like, okay, I need a real SUV with real off-road tires. Like I can't just keep doing this. So I sold that uh, pretty quickly and got the forerunner and then lifted that threw a mattress in it. And, you know, I would drive that thing all around the country and live out of it for like two, three weeks at a time, uh, climbing, biking and sleeping in there. And it was the most comfortable car I've ever been able to like sleep in, you know, you can sleep two people and a dog in there, like no problem. And you can drive it anywhere. So you can get to all these places where you won't see other people or other cars because most of them can't make it. And I really like that privacy in the outdoors where you're not surrounded by people. Otherwise, you know, I feel like it drives as well as any sedan I've driven, but then I can go off-road it. And even off-roading, it's just, it feels like a Cadillac, which I thought they've done a really good job with like the TRD, the Trail, the SR5. And then the limited. And, you know, I like the SR5 because it gives you the option to make a lot of your off-road modifications by yourself, how you like to do it. Like my buddy with his TRD, it's got a great suspension system in it and he can do a ton of off-roading. An SUV makes it possible not only to get to a location, 
but also to act as a pseudo production assistant for Dan on his shoots. When he's not sleeping in the back of the Forerunner, he has it loaded up with gear, luggage, rigging, and more. So it's kind of uh, one of those things where I don't necessarily plan it around the car, but the car, like the cars never inhibit me from getting there. Like I know pretty much anything I throw at a Forerunner, I can get through it. So the main thing that keeps me with Forerunners is the reliability. But really, like, I need to pack that car full of so much different gear. You know, I'll I'll go on a trip where I've got to bring a mountain bike, I've got to bring climbing gear, multiple ropes, because it's not just me going climbing, I've got to bring ropes for me to rig and then rappel down and ascend up so I can shoot climbers, you know, on the wall. Not only that, but a lot of times if I'm doing like a big campaign shoot with a clothing brand, I've got like, four duffel bags, five duffel bags of clothes just to shoot, like not including my camera gear or outdoor gear, technical gear or any of that. So on this last one I did a couple of weeks ago, it was the first one I took my new car on. And luckily I'd put a roof rack on it, but this thing was so loaded that, you know, I probably had a thousand pounds of gear between me, my girlfriend and all of the gear. and. Yeah, I had to drive that, you know, down all these crazy off-road roads. And um, yeah, I had to take it across a river at one point. We like, you know, we're driving for like five hours. We're, we're at the last like five miles to get to our location. And we get to this river crossing where the road literally just goes into the river. And we're like looking around to see where the other side is. It was out in um, Capitol Reef area. And there, like the road just kind of continues, I don't know, 200 feet down river and then it just starts again so i had to like kind of go like wade across it to see how deep it was so you don't want to go faster without like having a snorkel because then you're pushing more water in front of the car but they actually keep water from getting into like your intake and your yeah like you can trash a car by just getting water in the engine So some snorkels are just for vanity for the way that you want your car to look some actually serve a purpose Like if you're using it and you're not going into water, you could use it as a desert air intake manifold, which is what you call it when you're using it and you're on sand because you definitely don't want sand going into your engine. So what exactly is the purpose of a snorkel off-road? No, they actually work. We, uh, Me and my buddy with the GX had a conversation about like, oh man, it might be snorkel time. (laughs) So if you're going too fast, you're pushing more water at a greater mass in front of the hood. So it actually makes it deeper for the car. So you really want to go kind of slow without stirring up too much water. And you don't want it splashing around where it actually gets higher. So you just kind of wade through and go slow and hope you've got the clearance you need. And like some cars, you know, are built for going through that kind of stuff. And like, yeah, some have like actual ratings on the car when you buy it, like how deep of water you can take it through. Snorkels, lifts, tires, that's all great. But any Forerunner owner knows the real best feature. It's the rear gate window. I've got a, a little 20-pound, uh, he's a Pomsky, so a Pomeranian Husky. Looks like a little uh, Arctic fox. You know, I, a lot of times if I'm going to do something where I'm on a weekend trip with my dog, but there's sometimes where it's a little too technical and there's more climbing involved and it just becomes more of a pain in the ass. So, um, yeah, but yeah, I really like the the rear slide down window. It's just nice, you know, I'll open that up when 
we're driving and he'll just go pop his head out, rest his head on it. I loved being able to put the window down, especially if the car is all loaded up and I've got a mountain bike on the back on a rack and I can't actually like lift the tailgate up. They could just roll that down, grab something from the cooler. Dan has had some land cruisers come into play during shoots as well. This off-road legend has been holding strong generation after generation, testing its worth in the world's toughest remote locations like the Australian Outback. Turns out it's not too shabby as a production vehicle either. I spent three weeks uh, traveling through Bolivia and uh, we were in this group of like, our guides had like four old land cruisers with like 400,000 miles a piece on them. And we're literally just driving like six, seven hours through open deserts at like 15,000 feet of elevation. And we don't see anything or anyone for sometimes days. And then, you know, like the salt flats out there are the biggest in the world. Driving across those is nuts. But yeah, seeing the capability of those cars and like knowing that they're driving it across the salt flats all the time and not washing these things regularly. At one point, we actually like gotten an accident with our caravan. I was in the car that rear-ended another one. And the guys just, like at our next stop, we were in this place called Sahama, which is, I don't know, probably five to seven hours from uh, La Paz, which is the big city out there. And they just, you know, took hammers and just like bashed that car into like a new car. Like you could not have told that it was in an accident three days before. And they just fixed it with whatever parts they had on them or they could find around this little village. Yeah, it's amazing what people can do uh, on the side of a trail with uh, Toyotas and like getting them running again or just, you know, even getting them out. Like my last forerunner, it never died anywhere that like put me in a sticky situation. You don't need a gig with Red Bull to get outside of your zip code and experience our great national parks or public use land. We asked Dan if he had any advice for someone wanting to go off-road for the first time. Just start small. I felt that same anxiety for years, uh, mainly because I knew the significant impacts of driving in a car your car is not ready for. And I have really slowly like built my confidence up with what my cars can do, but that was all through trial and error. And you know, you can just take it on like a little fire road or a dirt road and get the feel for how it handles, how fast you can drive it, work your way up to a washboard road. That's when, um, like over time with like desert roads, um, it kind of just makes like these ridges in the road. So when you're driving over it, it's just like, doo, 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 doo. it's just millions of speed bumps. And then from there, you know, you can start going up steeper hills or, you know, do some light rock crawling. It also helps to go with someone else that can tow you out if you get into a sticky situation. But yeah, you know, these cars are built even stock to handle more than anyone's really going to drive them. Sounds similar to what Mike had to say earlier on. I think we're noticing a trend here. Getting out in the wild and disconnecting is much more accessible and possible than most of us tend to think. Before we got online to interview our next guest, I had actually been chatting with Alan Pierce, who was on episodes two and 19 of the podcast, and he saved me from something really embarrassing. I kept calling Gerald Swindle a fisherman, and Alan just laughed, straight up laughed at me before correcting me and telling me that Gerald is actually an angler. The difference is a point of contention in the community, almost like calling a professional cyclist a biker by mistake. Wondering what fishing has to do with Toyota? Let's hear from Team Toyota athlete Gerald Swindle, professional bass angler 
and two-time Bassmaster Angler of the Year. I was always competitive, and when I got out of school, fishing just kind of started to fill that void of wanting to do something to still keep competing at some level. And you know, it I, I speak a lot, and I do motivational speaking, and I speak to colleges and high school kids, and they're like, "Man, how'd you get started?" And I'm like, "You know." I think if you sit down and wrote a roadmap and said, hey, how do you get started? I probably went every way wrong. I just knew I wanted to do something in life better than framing houses. And that's what I was doing. And I got to competing in, in my teenage years and I started winning money. And I can remember driving back home from the lake one night. We fished like a four-hour tournament. We went one like 300 bucks. And I'm like, if I can make money doing this, this is going to be hard to get me to go to work. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to fish. So I just kind of took it as a, uh, it was just something as a passion at first. I can't never say at 20 years old, I sit down, looked in the mirror and said, I want to go, you know, fish the professional tour and be the, one of the top names in the sport. I didn't, I just wanted to make more money than I did framing houses. And I, it was just a passion. That, and I don't know what the roadmap was bumpy, but I did it. My father uh, fished, you know, and he even fished in tournaments. My oldest brother's passed away. He was my fishing partner. My middle brother fished. You know, my whole family has fished at some level, and they hunted. They were all uh, always outdoors and played sports. So it was kind of growing up. It's you didn't, you know. I, I had I had competed in a regional level, and it was a pretty good size. You know, I started local, then I got the regional, and I won a little bit of money. And I started trying to put money forward and try to fish bigger events and bigger events. And in 1998, I had won a few boats. I had won an angler a year in a smaller level tournament, and FLW had was released that they were going to have a hold a hundred and fifty thousand dollar cash payout tournament. I'm like, sign me up. Well, I got put on the waiting list. I didn't get in, so uh, they called me three days before the tournament. And said if you'll drive to Beaver, Arkansas, Beaver Lake, which is like ten hours from my house, you can get in. And at that time, it was unheard of. It was like a three thousand dollar entry fee. And I'm like, I went and uh, with a short practice, and I won. I won one hundred fifty thousand dollars, and that was like the turning point in my career. Uh, I can remember driving home. We still laugh about it because I drove home and went to the bank and put the check in there. And I told the girls that drive to, I said, I want my sucker. I've been coming in here for five years now putting stuff in the bank. I want my sucker. It's the biggest check I've going to deposit. But I can remember going back out to the job site because at that time I was still work in between tournaments. I would come home and jump on a, a framing crew. We'd just go over to the restaurant or the cafe. And I would, you know, where I was from, everybody framed houses. So if somebody needed help for the day, I was just a free agent. I would just go. I can remember coming home and I was talking to my uncle, my brother, and I took my saw out of the truck. We was getting ready and I cut the handle out of my hammer. I had a wooden hammer. I just cut it off. He said, what's that far? I said, I'll never be back. I will never, ever be back. And still to this day, I had never went back. I waited a long time to cut that hammer. <laughs> I, I like got up to, to go to work. I'm like, I'm getting up at 530 because I'm going over to tell them I ain't never coming back. <laughs> that's the determination. That's how bad you hate something. People say, what makes you fish so hard? I hated framing houses. You know, that's where, really where it comes from. My father didn't have, a, I didn't have an open check, but my father didn't have an American Express. Uh, we we was not financially like that at all. He said, if you want to do this, you're going to figure out on your own how to do it because I can't afford to do it for you. So being outside, it's all I ever remember as a kid. The way Gerald grew up being outdoors was just part of the equation, whether it was hunting, fishing, school sports, or helping his dad working around the house. And one thing he instilled in me is you work. You work, you work, and what you don't have the knowledge, you outwork, you outwork people. So still to this day, I give my dad credit, just his work ethic, you know. He was that guy. My dad was like a man's man. He's still alive today, but like he could outwork 10 people, you know, and he, he didn't never say no to nothing. If I said, you, you, you need to dig a ditch, he would get a shovel and start digging it. And I'm like, 
that work that they, I tell kids this day, I say, it doesn't matter if you want to fish, you want to play football, you want to play basketball, you got to work. Hard work is different than natural talent. It's something you can apply intentionally to give yourself an advantage. When you're striving towards something that you believe in, never underestimate the value of hard work. Sometimes when people ain't watching, it's easy to work. It's easy to go fishing when you're on Instagram, you know, and you're trying to make it look real cool. But you got to go fishing when it's raining and it's cold and nobody's watching. I said, when I played sports, I never worried about somebody who ran fast just when the coach was watching. I worried about the guy who turned the lights on at the weight room every morning before anybody got there and worked out. I worried about the guy who shot three pointers and wasn't nobody looking. I said, that's what fishing's all about because a lot of times it's not televised. You're just out working and you have to have that mindset that I, I can do this. I can grind through it. I've seen guys that I compete against come out as rookies and just really suck for the first year or two. And I'm thinking, this guy can't find a boat ramp. He's clueless. And then in two years, they've taught themselves at the highest level and became some of the top sticks out here. And they simply just, it wasn't natural to them at first. They had to work at it, but they learned how to do it. And that's, I mean, that's a cool concept when you watch it. I'm like, this guy came from learning every little bit. Because a lot of people like, you know, my dad fished, but a lot of guys that fish for a living now, their parents, their mom, they come from single home. They didn't, their parents didn't fish. So they're actually to teach, you know, really go out and teach themselves how to do it. Angling certainly has some similarities with other sports, persistence, dedication, but it has its own nuances and style that makes it unique. We asked Gerald how anglers go about practicing for tournaments. There is a lot of strategy. We try to cover water. I have five electronic units on my boat that can read side to side. I'm reading out like 120 feet side to side. I'm reading in front of me and down under me. I'm studying the bottom layout of the lake due to the time of year, and I'm like covering water. So what I try to do is find an area of the lake that has either the most bait that the fish are following or the most fish in it. And then that's where you try to spend your tournament time. But like it takes days to navigate around and it's all standing timber. So practice fishing, you're actually just learning how to navigate without running over something where the fish or the most fish are. So you can go back, you know, just like if they're running practice laps at NASCAR, that's basically all you're doing here. You're trying to figure out how to get to a certain area and back without tearing nothing up get a few bites in that area and then leave. So we try to cover as much of the lake as we can, rule out everything and then say, okay, this is my game plan and I'm going to do it on tournament. So it's a lot of like a psychological game. It's a lot like poker, reading personalities, reading uh, body posture, how somebody's standing, are they confident in their boat? Just like a football game or people talking smack, people can, it, you know, I've had tournaments where I went and caught really, really giant weight in the first hour and then spend the rest of the day riding around and just fishing by random people just so you could make them think I was somewhere else. Spend the whole day just riding around going, yep. And then people come in, they're like, well, he was here. No, he was over there. He was way down there. So there's a lot of defense goes on in this. It's, it's and, and you're betting on the river card a lot here because like my strategy tomorrow, the area that I'm going to go start, we're fishing for a hundred grand and the classics on the line, which is our Super Bowl of bass fishing. We're all trying to make it in that. I'm going to an area where I think the fish have moved to, you know, I'm like guessing their next move and they swim and they, they're not, they don't, they didn't read the book, but you simply just guessing. It's like betting on the river card. And if I bet right and those fish are headed to that current break, I'll be fine. It's a gut feeling. And that's what someone, you know, I can't tell you how much money I've won and seen other anglers win just on a gut feeling. Cause they'll say, well, what made you go to that particular area? I don't know. I just had a gut feeling and that's, no different than playing poker or a quarterback that makes a pass when people say there's no way that guy's supposed to be open. Hard work wasn't the only thing Gerald inherited from his childhood experiences. 
His background in archery and hunting has helped him prepare for tournaments and made him a better angler. I think it does. I think me being in the outdoors is the key because certain weathers, uh, patterns and certain cold fronts and certain type of day, animals move better. So you see more squirrels, more deer, more everything moves. And then there's some days when the weather's not right and you don't see anything. And you kind of note that as a fisherman, you're like, you know, some days the big fish really do bite. And then some days they don't. So I think me just simply being outdoors always kind of keeps me in tune with watching Mother Nature, you know, because if I'm fishing down the bank and or fishing out in an area and I don't hear any birds, there's no squirrels, there's no activity, the dogs aren't barking. It's usually a low pressure situation and, and the animals, it's, it's like everything's slow. But if you go outside in the morning before daylight, and you, I'm sure you've seen this, you go outside sometimes before daylight and every bird's singing and everything, you're driving to the ramp, you're seeing rabbits on the road everywhere. That usually means the fish you're going to buy. If your gut feeling can play into angling, we wondered, is there anything superstitious about getting out on the water and casting a line? I don't like any bananas in the boat. That's a super bad luck deal. And I don't pump gas on tournament morning, and I don't normally ever wear red underwear on tournament. Every time I wore red underwear, I sucked. So if I were to get out there and have red underwear on, I'm, I'm taking them off. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, I'm not fishing with them on. But I'm not really crazy superstitious. Like, you know, my roommate and one of my good, really good friends, he's a guy, if he catches them really good on day one, he eats the same food the rest of the week. Like, he doesn't break any, any tradition. But some guys are very superstitious and some are not. We mentioned earlier that Gerald is a two-time Bassmaster Angler of the Year. He earned those titles in 2004 and again in 2016. So we asked him how scoring and tournaments work and how he won his titles. There's 84 contestants in each of this event. There's the Bassmasters Elite Series. There's some of the, like, the top 84 anglers in the country in bass. You can only bring in five and you try to catch your biggest five. So once you catch the sixth one, you can put the smallest one back and keep, continue to do that. So what it is, it'll be the year 20 fish over four days. If you caught five a day to the total weight, and whoever does that wins a hundred thousand. And it could, I mean, I have lost a hundred grand by one ounce, and I've actually won by one ounce. So it's when we say ounces, like it's crucial. We have a hundred points possible per event. And back then we had a hundred anglers in per event. So if you finish in first, you get a hundred points. If you finish in last, you get one point. So over 10 tournaments, it's the highest accumulated points, just like NASCAR. So you would have to stay. Like, you really got to catch them. You can't have one bad day out of, uh, so it would be 40-something tournament days. You can't have, like, any bad days. It's all on points, one one point per place. Usually we have one event at the end of the year, which is called the AOI Fish-Off. In the last event, they'll have it cut down to, like, 50 guys instead of 100, and then they'll fish one particular event and see who takes the crown from there. But ours is so, so scattered out, like, in the way we do it, it's usually just that one tournament. But what we've learned is even when you get inside that tournament, you can't move. There's 50 guys there. There's still 100 points. You just get two for first. I mean, you get you get 100 for first and two for last. So it's really hard to move because the field's so small. So once you get in, it's just like if there was just 10 cars on the track, there's really not nowhere they can go. Gerald may not be carrying cameras or dogs like Mike or Dan, but he does need to get his fishing gear and boats to and from the water. And for that, he relies on his Toyota Tundra. Right now, I've got a 2019, and this one is not lifted as much. It's a, it is actually the crew cab, but it's usually I run like a six or eight inch lift. We like to jack everything up, big tires, big wheels. I tell them we, everything we have is lifted. 
that's about what I'm running right now. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm here in, through the grapevine. We're coming out with a new truck. So I didn't want to go crazy on this truck build. I want to buy one of the new Tundras, but I want to supercharge it and run it on a drag strip. I'm really into old muscle cars and racing, and I, I've got a guy to do it. And I think, I'm going to buy me a Tundra, supercharge it. There the rear end to drive it on the street. My wife like, you lost your mind. I'm like, it would be kind of cool. I think I'm going to do it. I love drag racing. I love to go watch, you know, so I thought I'll just build me a Toyota. Sounds like we may need to link up Gerald with the Toyota Motorsports team in the future. All right. So the Tundra is already in the mix as a durable, reliable vehicle for fishing. But we wanted to know how Gerald's Toyota sponsorship came about. Toyota came about for me. I've worked with a guy named Lance Peck who started Dynamic Sponsorship, which is now based out of Oklahoma, which is the liaison between Sachi and Toyota and the fishing team. And this guy was always in the outdoor industry, had this vision to start this. I worked with him at Sitco when I was with the gas company. And now it's just like, as soon as he landed the deal, he come to me and he said, hey, I've always worked with you and I think this is a fit. And I can remember when we first started running the trucks, you know, there just wasn't many of them out here. And I tell everybody, I said, we were the guys that ran Toyota at the boat ramp when it wasn't cool. You know, when you were some of the first ones out here. And now it's so funny because when I pull up the boat ramps, they're just lined up. I see them jacked up, big lift kids lower down. I'm like, yep, I believe we won this battle. It's just kept growing and growing. I mean, it, we've, uh, I, I tell my wife every year, so I'm so, we're so thankful to have them. You know, they work us, but we've had a lot of great opportunities through them. And we got to see a lot of cool things and meet a lot of neat people. Gerald's talked about hard work, dedication, and experience. All these things have led him to win championships and earn sponsorships in Angling. But there's one more thing that's vital and keeps Gerald successful day after day. And not just in fishing, but also in life. I think that's something that that I started. Actually, I started that for my life and then it bled over into my fishing. You know, I wanted to I was fishing. and I was like, I, you know, it's so easy to get negative. And this has been many, many years ago. And you, I would be around people. They were negative, And I noticed if you're around negativity, it kind of draws you to it. So I started really paying attention to it. And I'm like, no, I'm going to stay. I'm going to keep a positive mental attitude. And I just started saying it over and over. I just want to stay positive no matter what the situation, try to remain positive. And it really, when I started it, it was to be a better father, to be a better husband, to be a better son. I just wanted to be more positive. I didn't want negativity to control me or change how I feel about everything. And in life, as humans, we're bad about going with whatever. We, you know, it's either really good or it really sucks. And I was like, I have to figure out a way to stay positive, even when there was tough times. And I started doing it fishing and I started talking about it. And now it's just kind of blows up. And, you know, I go speak about it. I get just numerous emails and messages about people that said, you know, they've used some of my strategies of positive mental attitude and how it's changed them as a person. I think if you want to, you can find something bad in everything. I truly do. I think if you really want to, you can also find something good in the worst things in the world. And I think by being positive, you create a better or a better, I don't know, it's almost like a, it's like a sense of calm. You know, I, I talk to guys and they're like, man, I want to fish. I want to get in the zone out there. I want to just be just in the zone. And I'm like, Bro, you don't go on the water and get in the zone. You, you create and live in your own zone. If you're, if you're a positive person and you think positive and you do everything you can to be a better person, then when you get on the water, guess what? Well, hell, you're in the zone. But you can't be a butthole all the way to the ramp and then get in the boat and go, hey, I'm going to be in a really good mood and the fish are going to bite. It's going to go my way. No, no, it's not. It's still going to suck. 
it's so cliche when people say that. I say, you know, the power of the mind is so strong. And then I, I can go to anything you want to do. If you're positive and you believe in it enough, you'll find a way and things will happen your way. But if you get negative, it can control everything you do. It's really funny. I started doing some stories. I started going back during, during the pandemic because we wasn't on tour. And I started reflecting back on some things that, that over the last 10 or 15 years that happened that, that people have come and either give me a testimony or, or something really strong happened about someone had listened to my positive mental attitude speech and come up and told me a story. And I talked about a gentleman who handed me a bullet one time. And as the more I talked to him, he started crying. He's like, I was going to kill myself. And I'm like, what? And he said, that's the bullet. He said, I started watching your video and I didn't do it. He said, I brought you the bullet. And I'm like, then you realize that that a simple YouTube video about telling people, hey, just be positive. Don't don't let little things get you down. So during the pandemic, I was able to do more of those and take time and watch more and get more messages from people talking about, you know, keep us positive, keep talking about it, make sure everybody stays on it. Because you just, you know, I've had uh, so many great things. I had a lady at a Toyota event come up. She said, I watched your uh, positive mental attitude video from California you did at Angler's Marine and she said I'm here today to tell you I'm two years clean of heroin she said I tried like everything I could and never beat it so to me when I see or hear people come out to talk to you about that you start realizing it's bigger than efficient you know the, the 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 frame of mind and the positivity and what you can do so now I try to tell uh, even myself sometimes because it's real easy to get you know I haven't had a great practice. It's real easy to be a butthole. You know, you're at the gas station and you're mad and you're tired. It would be real easy when people are coming up. And, you, and so I tell myself to hold yourself accountable because you never know at what point in life you're going to impact somebody. You just never know when you're going to make a different impression on somebody. So I, I kind of tell everybody, even my fans, I say, let's all hold ourselves accountable just to be better people. You just never know when you're going to make a different impression on somebody. So I, I kind of tell everybody, even my fans, I say, let's all hold ourselves accountable just to be better people, just to smile more. That was one of the things that's really pissed me off about Corona is everybody wears masks and you can't see people smile. And smiles is what brings happiness. And my wife said, well, it's, I said, I know it's what we need to do. But I said, people smiles. I said, you know how joyful it is when you see a 70-year-old woman in the grocery store smile? Or you see a young lady or somebody smiling and laughing, I said, it's it's very contagious. With a mask on, we don't know if you're mad or smiling. We don't know if you got, I don't know. I'm like, I'm going to see people smile. It's good for us. No matter your flavor of outdoor activity, there's one thing that all of our guests have agreed on. Nature makes you happier. Getting out into the wild, exploring the world around you, and finding ways to disconnect can have a real impact on your happiness and your mental health. And especially in these times of COVID, a relationship with the outdoors is more important than it's ever been. We may not be able to congregate the same way that we used to, but that doesn't mean we're relegated to a life in front of the computer screen or streaming something on the TV. Overlanding, angling, or just plain old hiking can help us cope right now, regardless of our situation. So start up your forerunner, hop on your mountain bike, or just grab your backpack and get out there. I've always been kind of amazed at what people can do just by being human, whether it's, you know, jumping off of cliffs on skis, climbing cliffs, uh, mountain biking, um, really anything that gets people outside and interacting with their environment in a, you know, positive, exciting way. I really like being around people that 
you know, find that much joy and happiness in the outdoors. Mostly for me, it's just the beauty. You get on some of these road, these uh, trails, these old mining trails and stuff, and the views you get from there and the camp spots you can set up are just uh, really legendary. So the trips that I like going on a lot of times are where I'm hanging out with a bunch of other friends and, and we get to talk shop and talk trucks and, and hang out and cook food. But then when you go out, you're just almost forced to just relax. There, there's no none of the distractions at home. So we always say that we'd never regret going out. So sometimes it's hard to do. It's like, ah, oh, I'd rather just stay home, watch some TV, relax, kick my feet up and do nothing. And I've regretted doing that a lot of times, but I've never regretted saying, ah, oh, you know what? Let's just pack up some food and go camping. And I would encourage everybody to do that. Try to find a way to be positive. Try to find a good, hold the door for somebody. I try to make myself do something every day to make a point to go do something nice for somebody unexpected. It's as simple as holding a door or picking up something. Just do some form or something to be make yourself better every day. So whether you're experiencing the outdoors, picking up a new competitive sport, or just going through an average day, never underestimate the power of a nice gesture and a positive attitude. Thanks for listening to Toyota Untold. This is Tyler. A reminder that modifying your vehicles with non-genuine Toyota parts can negatively affect your warranty, safety performance, and street legality. Other trademarks and trade names appearing on the vehicles are those of their respective owners. Off-roading is inherently dangerous. Abusive use may result in bodily harm or vehicle damage. Wear your seatbelt at all times and do not allow passengers in the cargo area. This podcast is brought to you by Toyota Motor Sales USA, Inc. and may not be reproduced or redistributed in whole or in part without prior permission of Toyota. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and or hosts and do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of Toyota. Please note that Toyota is not responsible for any errors or the accuracy or timeliness of the content provided. Used with permission, all rights reserved worldwide.